very thankful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for the opportunity we have to come and worship you. We're especially thankful, Father, for the new plebes and their families that are visiting with us. We're thankful, Father, for all of our visitors. And as we study your word, we ask that you be with us, guide us, help us, and bless us, Father. In Jesus' holy name, amen. The topic this morning is a future by faith. Our future and faith go hand in hand. In fact, our faith will determine our future. So it's pretty important, isn't it? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The verse has a number of key words, assurance, confidence, hope, a fervent desire, conviction, a belief that's powerful enough to guide our actions. What we often miss when we read that verse is there is an embedded promise built into that verse. The faith that we talk about can be assured. Our faith is the stuff of conviction. even though we believe in things that we can't see. Many people accuse Christians of having blind faith, of having no basis or rational basis for belief. Many people think that faith is just wishful thinking or a deep-held desire to believe in fairy tales. It's not that. That's just not the case. A rabbi and a priest and a Church of Christ preacher were out in a rowboat on the lake fishing, after a while, the priest says, you know, I left my lunch in the car. I need to go get it. With that, he steps out of the boat, walks across the water, across the shore, goes to the car, gets his lunch, comes back to the lake, walks across the water, and steps back into the boat. The rabbi doesn't even look up, but the Church of Christ preacher is just amazed. As he's pondering this, the rabbi says, you know, I just remembered I left my cell phone in the car and I'm expecting an important call. With that, the rabbi steps out of the boat, walks across the water, goes to the car, gets his cell phone, walks back to the lake, walks across the water, steps back in the boat. The Church of Christ preacher just can't believe what he's seeing. How could this be? What kind of faith do those two guys have? Not to be outdone, he thinks, I've just got to show them that I too can walk on water. So he says, you know, I, I just left my wallet in the car and I need to go get it. With that, he steps out of the boat, sinks into eight feet of water, is floundering and is splashing. The priest turns to the rabbi and says, I guess we should have told him where the rocks are. <laughs> now that's an old story, but it's a good one. It demonstrates a very important point. All too often we think of faith as something magical and mystical. It's not. Faith is just as down to earth and practical as can be. The power of faith is real. But we have to know where the rocks are. This morning I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about where the rocks are. The rocks that enable our faith. To do that, I'd like to consider some of the challenges that the world throws up in our face these days, challenges that might cause us to doubt. One of the most important or most popular arguments against Christianity these days, we hear it all the time, 
is that people have in the past done terrible things in the name of Christ. They've justified very bad behavior by using the Bible, the Word of God, in perverted ways. We hear about the Crusades, the Inquisition, slavery. Those are facts. Those are bad happenings. It is terrible that people have done terrible things in the name of Christ. So what does that have to do with our correctly using the Bible today? Nothing. Certainly we need to look in the past. We need to see what people have done and why they've done things the way they have. We need to learn from that and don't do that. People who have used the Bible to justify their bad behavior were most often driven by arrogance, pride, lust, greed, or just plain ignorance. When we look to God's word, we must do so in humility, with an attitude of submission, self-sacrifice, grace, mercy, and love. We must look at our motives and put God first and not ourselves. But what we're hearing from the world is, well, your kind has been wrong in the past, and therefore you're wrong now. That's a ridiculous argument. In the face of that argument, we remember, must remember that we can get it right. While looking at all of the evil that has been done in the name of Christ, we must be mindful of all the good that has been done in the name of Christ. And let's do good in the name of Christ. One of the rocks that we need to be mindful of is the confidence that we can have in Christ that we can get it right. We can have solid foot, footing if we totally rely on him. Psalm 40, verse 2, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Another argument that we hear today used to attack our faith has to do with what we don't know. When asked if we believe the Bible and we say yes, we are then invariably pummeled with questions. You've all experienced this. Well, where did Cain get his wife? Or why was your loving God so cruel in the Old Testament? Or do you really believe that Noah could have gotten all those animals in the ark? Or how do you believe the Genesis story of creation in light of what science tells us today? The argument is, is that if we don't know something or can't answer these questions, it calls our whole faith into question. And that's ridiculous. Unfortunately, for some reason, be it arrogance or pride, most likely we feel compelled, don't we, to have answers. We feel deficient if we can't answer all these questions. We feel on the defensive. And that too is ridiculous. What I don't know in no way detracts from what I do know. To just take one of those questions, the, the one about creation. Do we really think that all of the details about how God created the universe are captured in 31 verses in Genesis? While all true, that's unreasonable to think that. There's more to the story. Do I know those details? Do I know more of what's, uh, what about how God did that? 
Well, I might know some things, but I don't know a lot. I'm not afraid to say I don't know. When I was much younger, I could look under the hood of my car, and I knew what everything was there for. I knew how it worked. If it broke, I knew how to fix it. Life was great. That was a long time ago. Today, I look under the hood of my car, and there's stuff there. I have no idea what it is. Don't know what it does. Don't know how it works. If it breaks, I'm lost. But you know, in, in fact, on top of that, I don't care. There's, you know, I really don't want to know. Don't trouble me with that. And you know, I don't need to know. I know the important things. I can get in my car. I can turn the key. I can drive it wherever I want to go. It takes me there. I don't need to know all that stuff under the hood. It might be nice if I did, but I don't need to know that. Our faith is just like that. Don't let the world intimidate you by what you don't know. Stand firm on what you do know. The rock here is found in John chapter 20, in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He has revealed to us what we need to know about our salvation, and we can be confident of that. I may not know everything about God and his plan for me, but I know enough. And the scriptures and the creation itself hold the wonderful promise that if I study, if I pray, if I just pay attention, I can and will know more in the future. Another challenge to our faith, and it's the most insidious challenge that we face, it's one that we quite often promote in the church. It's a self-inflicted wound. The world tells us at just about every turn, you're not good enough. Think of all the advertising we're subjected to that tells us you're not good enough unless you use this toothpaste or unless you use this deodorant. I hope everybody has. Unless you drive this car or unless you buy this or that, you're not good enough. We hear you're not good enough hundreds of times a day. The problem we have spiritually is that we are led to believe that we need to be good enough to gain salvation. How many times have we heard in the church, well, if we just do our best, God will do the rest? We hear that all the time. I don't know about you, but I'm rarely confident, as in never, that I've done my best. Even when I've done something really, really good, I always wonder, well, could I have done just a little bit better? Could I have worked just a little bit harder? And when I sin, when I fail, I'm haunted by the question, did I really do my best? And I'm ashamed to say, no, I didn't. If to be saved, I have to answer that question, yes, I always did my best. I'm in big, big trouble. That whole train of thought just sets us up for a life of despair, discouragement. It saps the joy out of life. It undermines our faith. Of course we want to do our best, and that's an appropriate response considering what God has done to it for us. But our salvation is not based upon our performance. Let me say that again. Our salvation is not based on our performance. 
Our salvation is solely based, solely based on our relationship with Jesus. We're weak, we foul up, I do that daily, and that can be discouraging. But one of the things that that doesn't do to me, it does not change my relationship with Jesus. It does not impact my faith and my hope of eternal life. Paul felt the discouragement of not being good enough very deeply. In Romans 7, starting with verse 14 and following, Paul talks about wanting to do good and not doing it, but doing the evil that he hated. In verse 19 he says, For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Does that sound familiar? He is totally torn up by that. In verse 23 he describes the conflict as a raging war within himself. Terrible situation. Finally in desperation and despair he cries out, Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? And the answer to that question, the most important rock that we have for our faith is in verse 25. When Paul answers his own question, he answers, Who will save me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are songs in our songbook that talk about what worms we are to talk about how unworthy and worthless we are. I hate those songs. I have written here, I really don't like those songs, but I'll say it very plain. I hate those songs. I don't like them. I choke on the words. And that's not because I think I am worthy. Because that's not the case at all. But rather because God thinks I'm worthy. Because God makes me worthy. When you think that you're not good enough, just think what your worth is. God sent his son to die for you. On the day that Christ was crucified, God established your worth. He bought you. He paid your price. My wife Susan and I go to estate sales almost every Saturday. Beat staying home and working. Uh, we buy lots of things that we don't need. We often haggle about the price. There is an old and very wise saying that says, something is only worth what somebody is willing to pay. No more, no less. So what's your worth? You are worth the life of the Son of God. That's truly incredible, isn't it? You are worth the life of the Son of God. And knowing that, we have the audacity to deny that by considering ourselves worth unworthy and worthless. May we see ourselves as the precious sons and daughters of Almighty God that we are. May we honor God in his son's sacrifice by accepting and understanding his great love for us in spite of our shortcomings. The rock is here in Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, okay, trying to see us as God sees us, that's hard, isn't it? Very hard. You might say, well, okay, I, I buy that. I believe that intellectually. I have faith in that. But then, just think, what are you thinking now? Well, do I believe that enough? Have you ever gone down that road? I believe, but maybe not enough. 
I bet you have. We all have. But when we say, do I believe enough, that is the same syndrome that we're talking about when you say, am I good enough? When we question, is my faith strong enough? Am I good enough? Where's our focus? Well, it's back on ourselves. Man, when you find yourself focusing on yourselves in anything religious, in anything spiritually, man, rethink it. We have got to put our focus on Jesus. One of my favorite scriptures in Mark chapter 9, a father brings his very sick, demon-possessed son to Jesus. He asks Jesus, is there anything you can do? In verse 23, Jesus answers and says, if you can, all things are possible who to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. The man knew his situation. I believe, but I'm not sure I believe enough to get the job done. Help me, Lord. I believe. Help thou my unbelief. That's one of the best prayers ever recorded. And how did Jesus answer that? He demonstrated his answer. He healed the boy. The prayer was answered. When we pray that prayer, we have every reason to believe that God will answer it in the very same way. Our belief, no matter how small or how inadequate we might think it might be, is enough if we but rely on and focus on Jesus. What a promise. What a, what a rock. Of course, one of the biggest challenges to faith that we, that we face is when our faith is tested. Often when bad things happen in our life, when we are confronted by evil, when we have to make hard choices, when we fail, we've all experienced this. This summer, you plebes were challenged to do new and difficult things. At first, you probably felt intimidated, maybe a bit scared. As you mastered new skills and gained experience, you gained competence. And as your competence increased, as your ability to deal with these challenges increased, you gained confidence, didn't you? Confidence comes from competence. With competence and confidence, you overcame challenges and you felt the satisfaction of growing, of learning, of getting stronger. Doing things successfully that you didn't know you could do. In fact, you're even better looking now than you were when you started. <laughs> New ch challenges don't intimidate you the way they once did. Now you see them as opportunities to further increase your skills and abilities. The next four years will build on what you've experienced this summer. You'll continue to grow and learn. You'll be stronger tomorrow than you are today. And that's exactly what our life in Christ is supposed to be. That's where our faith takes us. We grow stronger spiritually. We grow more competent. Our confidence increases. Our faith increases. We are less prone to be rattled by bad things that happen and more prone to see the possibilities and opportunities that might first have been seen as setbacks and roadblocks. In Christ, we can live competent and confident lives. The rock is here in James 1, starting with verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, 
so that you may perfect and be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, we started out talking on walking on water, and I'd like to finish with that. Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on water is recorded in Matthew chapter 14. In verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got back in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Now, I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I see some of you are already ahead of me on that. Uh, and, And that's good. While you have your eyes closed, I want you to do something very important. I want you to visualize what's happening here. Play the video. Frame by frame, play the video. Peter getting out of the boat. Peter walking on the water. Peter looking and becoming frightened. Peter sinking. Peter crying out for help. The Lord reaching out and taking Peter by the hand. Peter and Jesus getting back in the boat. But stop. Rewind. Go back to verse 31. Jesus taking Peter by the hand. Play it again. What happens next? Do you see it? It's not recorded. But do you see it? Do you see what happens next? It is one of the most beautiful scenes in the entire Bible. And we don't see it like we should. It's a beautiful scene. What do you see? You see Jesus and Peter walking on the water hand in hand back to the boat. I love that. Why do I love that? Because that's not Peter I see, that's me. I was sinking. I was lost. I was drowning. I cried out. Jesus reached out and took me by the hand and together right this very minute, right this very minute, we walked together hand in hand on the water. If you're in Christ, look at that picture again. If you're in Christ, that's you out on the sea walking hand in hand with Jesus. We walk together on the rocks of his promises. Well, all of this was supposed to be tied to the future. Captain Sean Jernigan, Admiral Mary DeBose, Secretary of the Navy, Hannah Wilson, President Brady Harrison Jackson, All of that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now, there is a plebe here this morning that I haven't met. Sorry about that. I have openings as Secretary of Defense and and, uh, Ambassador to the United Nations. You can talk to me afterwards and see what you'd like. I certainly can't say what your future holds in any detail, but I have faith in each of you, each of the plebes, and each of us sitting here today. That whatever you be, you'll be great. Your future is terrific. The fact that you are here, all of us are here this morning, 
demonstrates graphically in concrete that you see that your success in life is directly related to your success spiritually. That is so important. We see in those who seek to lead this country moral bankruptcy, spiritual failure. It is sad. In Christ you have a moral and spiritual compass that as long as you're willing to use it will never let you down. It will always take you to where you need to be. It will always provide you, provide you direction. We have rocks to walk on. We have God's truth. We have God's immeasurable love. We have his promises guaranteed by the gift of his son. When you go out of here this morning, hold fast to Jesus and walk on those rocks. All of these blessings are in Christ. Galatians tells us in Galatians 3.27 that when we are baptized, we are clothed with Christ. If any here need to do that this morning, or if there's anything else that we can do for you this morning, why don't you please make your needs known as together we stand and sing.